Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Today on this, episode two of the Bible Mystery Podcast, we are talking about unicorns in the Bible? So what's the show all about? The Bible Mystery Podcast is about how interesting the Bible is and mysteries that surround the scriptures. The Bible is a supernatural book, and so therefore it's going to have all sorts of things in it that are not easy for us to understand. Sometimes the show is going to be straight up Bible questions and answers, down-to-earth topics like uh, episode number one, The Resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the answers there are going to be solidly grounded in the biblical text. Sometimes the show topics will be a little more, well, out there, shall we say. Like today. Today's topic is unicorns, and it is dedicated to my youngest daughter, Phoebe, who is a huge unicorn fan herself. You might be wondering by now what unicorns have to do with the Bible, but if you're a King James-only kind of person, you probably already know that the word unicorns appears in the King James Version of the Bible nine times in the 1611 King James Version and nine times even in the updated 1769 Standard Version. At some point during the show, we're probably going to do a podcast solely focused on the 1611 King James Version of the Bible and maybe even King James Version only people. Some people out there only accept the King James Version of the Bible as the Holy Scriptures for English-speaking people today. And it's an interesting topic for me in particular, for one, because most people in the KJV-only camp would reject the more Catholic-associated apocryphal books of the Bible. And yet, oddly enough, the 1611 KJV contains at least 14 apocryphal books in addition to the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I digress. One day soon, I think we will cover both the 1611 King James Version and the Apocrypha, but today is not that day. Today is the day, however, that we cover unicorns. You might not know that unicorns are actually in the Bible, but they are. Well, sort of in the Bible. Let's, let's take a look. Psalm 22, verse 19, and this is going to be in the original KJV 1611 version. Be not far, F-A-R-R-E, from me, M-E-E, O Lord, O my strength, hast thee to help me. Delure my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Yes, that's right. Thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. So, let me say this. As I mentioned in the trailer for the show, episode zero, I believe that the Bible is faithful and true, inerrant in its original language, and absolutely trustworthy. Therefore, I believe the Bible is here speaking of a real animal and is not putting forward some sort of myth or fanciful creation or something just made up. Duh! Now, does that mean that unicorns are or were real creatures? Not necessarily. So, believing in the trustworthiness of the Bible, we do have two options here for our KJV unicorns. Number one, unicorns actually existed, but they are probably extinct now. Number two, 
The KJV translators of the Bible did not properly or exactly translate the Hebrew word for unicorn. So we're going to take a long look at both of those options. But first, let's take a long look at the word itself that is translated as unicorn. And it is the Hebrew word re-aim. Easy for me to say. It's the Hebrew word re-aim. And that in itself is from the Hebrew verb ra'am, which means to raise up. All nine times ra'am appears in the Old Testament. The 1611 and 1769 translators of the King James Version translate ra'am with the word unicorn. Now, I'm going to read through all of the appearances of that word in the Bible. So as I do, sort of pay attention to any physical descriptions so that we can determine if the word re'aim actually refers to the equine horse-like creature of fantasy and legend, or maybe could it refer to some other type of creature. So we'll start in Numbers 23-22. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Isaiah 34 verse 7 and the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompense for the controversies of Zion. That's KJV 1611. How about Deuteronomy 33:17? His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Job 39.9 Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee, or abide by thy, thy crib? Verse 10 Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after thee? We already read Psalm twenty-two, twenty-one, but Psalm 29, 6 says this, He maketh them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. Psalm 92, 10, But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of an unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Finally, Isaiah 34, 7. And the unicorn shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. So, those are some interesting passages to be sure. The King James Version of the Bible, as well as several other Bible translations in the English from around this time period, and, and not just English, but Martin Luther did this same thing with the German version of the New Testament that he helped translate. They all seem to indicate that God has the strength of a unicorn, that his horns are like the horns of the unicorns, and that God is among, is coming back with the unicorns and bulls on the day of his judgment. So, man, what in the world is going on here? Here's what we learned from these passages, kind of paying attention to what they say about this creature, this Ra'aim. Well, Ra'aims are powerful. They're difficult to control or to tame. They have at least one horn, more on that later, and they are quite wild. 
Unfortunately, that description, of course, fits a lot of wild animals, and it doesn't really tell us exactly what creature the authors of the Old Testament were specifically referring to, although we can probably rule out three-toed sloths and dung beetles and platypodes from the consideration. The Bible's mention of unicorns was not lost on the leaders of the early church, a lot of early church fathers talked about unicorns as well, or at least they talked about their aims as well. Origen, for instance, known for his daring deed, was an early church father living in the 200s, and he wrote this. Other pro prohibitions, such as that to eat of the unicorn, a creature that has no existence. Now, I'm not familiar with a passage that talks about eating or not eating unicorns in the Bible, so I'm not sure what Origen is going on about there, but he does say, writing in the 200s, that unicorns don't exist. That's interesting. But Jerome, who is one of the original translators of the Latin version of the Bible called the Vulgate, he came, oh, about a hundred, a little over a hundred years after Origen, Jerome wrote the, this about the unicorn or the Chorheim. There are beasts of this sort in the desert of the east, but they are never seen by human beings or captured by them. So it kind of sounds like he's, uh, he's talking about a little uh, cryptozoological creature there. Never seen by human beings or captured by them. Kind of mythical. Um, Theodoret, who was also an early church father writing in the 400s, he seems to take the name unicorn as somewhat symbolic, and he writes this in a commentary on Psalms. He says, They say the unicorn is equipped with one horn, and the law gave instructions for adoring one God. So it was right for him to liken the one temple dedicated to the one God to a unicorn. Now, <laughs> I would say that's a bit of a stretch there, but we'll be graceful for our, to our buddy uh, Theodoret of Cyrus. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. So, lots of in information so far, but no real answers. And that brings us back to our original question. Does the Bible proclaim the existence of unicorns? And again, here are our two major options. Yes, the Bible teaches that unicorns, the fantastical beasts of legend, do exist or once existed, or no, the word rechem means something different. On the yes side, Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell uh, writes an article for Answers in Genesis, a ministry I have a lot of respect for, and she says this about the question of unicorns. She seems to be on the, on the I kind of think it, unicorns are real side. This is what she says. Modern readers have trouble with the Bible's unicorns because we forget that a single-horned feature is not uncommon on God's menu for animal design. She says, consider the rhinoceros and narwhal. The Bible describes unicorns skipping like calves, Psalm 29.6, traveling like bullocks and bleeding when they die, Isaiah 34.7. The presence of a very strong horn on this powerful, independent-minded creature is intended to make readers think of strength. The absence of a unicorn in the modern world should not cause us to doubt its past existence, she writes. Think of the dodo bird. It does not exist today, but we do not doubt that it existed in the past. 18th century reports from southern Africa describe rock drawings and eyewitness accounts of fierce, single-horned equine-like animals. 
One such report describes a single horn directly in front about as long as one's arms and at the base about as thick. It had a sharp point. It was not attached to the bone of the forehead but fixed only in the skin. And Dr. Mitchell goes on to mention a few other possibilities for the Recham, uh, but does clearly seem to favor an equine monohorned solution, much like what we would call a unicorn. She does mention some evidences scattered about for such a creature might maybe existing, like drawings and eyewitness accounts from Africa of possible unicorn sightings over the centuries. That kind of reminds me of uh, a very famous cryptid from the Congo Cameroon era, uh, area in Africa. A lot of people talk about, you might have heard it before, it's been compared to something like a small brontosaurus. And supposedly the Africans call it the Mokile Mapembe or one who stops the flow of rivers. There was a German explorer named Captain Ludwig von Stein, and he wrote this in 1913 about the Mokele Mpimba. He said, The animal is said to be of a brownish-gray color with a smooth skin. Its size is approximately that of an elephant, at least that of a hippopotamus. It is said to have, have a long, very flexible neck and only one tooth, but a very long one. Some say it is a horn. A few spoke about a long muscular tail like that of an alligator. Canoes coming near it are said to be doomed. The animal is said to attack the vessels at once and to kill its crews but without eating the bodies. The creature is said to live in the caves that have been washed out by the river and the clay of its shores at sharp bends. It is said to climb the shores even at daytime in search of food. Its diet is said to be entirely vegetable, which I might say is a relief. This feature disagrees with a possible explanation as a myth, continues the captain. The preferred plant was shown to me. It is kind of a liana with large white blossoms with a milky sap and apple-like fruits. At the Samba River, I was shown a path said to have been made by the Mokili Mapemba in order to get at its food. The path was fresh and there were plants of those described nearby. But since there were too many tracks of elephants, hippos, and other large mammals, it was impossible to make out a particular spore with any amount of certainty. So, is such a thing possible? Honestly, I have no idea. It does make for a great campfire tale, but the lack of fossilized remains does seem to be a bit of a strike against the existence of such a creature. Likewise, the lack of fossilized remains seems to be a strike against the existence of an equine or horse-like style unicorn. In fact, I think barring evidence to the contrary, it's pretty likely that such a creature has never existed. Perhaps a horse or other horse-like mammal uh, with one horn has been seen. Those kind of mutations sometimes happen and are still occasionally seen today. But for me to believe in a medieval-style, gallant, glorious white unicorn with a curved horn, I'd honestly like to see a little bit more evidence for such a thing before I sign on enthusiastically to it. So that brings us to option number two for unicorns in the Bible. And that option is that the translators of the KJV, like the translators of the Latin Vulgate upon which much of the KJV is based on, mistranslated 
or didn't fully accurately translate the word Ruch'aim. Michael Heiser is a uh, is a scholar for uh, the software company Logos. He is uh, a, an interesting guy. He's got a PhD. He's written a lot of interesting books. He wrote an article for Bible Study Magazine called uh, that was kind of focused on the difficulties of Bible translation. It's a pretty short article, and I could sum it up, but it's good enough that I think I'm going to read it for us. So pay attention to this for a couple of minutes because it really will enlighten you. If you've never thought about the difficulties of how you can translate the Bible from the original Hebrew, Greek, a little bit of Aramaic into modern languages, this will be enlightening for you. So Dr. Heiser writes this. A famous Italian proverb declares traditor traditor, which means translator comma traitor. Those who assume this is true are unaware how difficult it is to produce a translation. Every translator at some point invariably discards the meaning of the original text. A committee of scholars assembled to produce a translation typically adopts an overarching philosophy of translation. In the most simple of terms, there are two philosophies. The first is called formal equivalence, which seeks to account for virtually every word in the original text by producing its English counterpart. In translation, this is a word-for-word or, quote, literal translation. The second is called dynamic equivalence. This approach seeks to capture the thought of the original verse in context, then recreate that thought using whatever English words are most precise. This is thought-for-thought translation. But adopting an approach does not mean that all translators will apply it equally. There's also the matter of interpretation. When the biblical text allows more than one translation due to ambiguity in the context, grammar, or word usage, a translator needs to make his or her own decision, which can lead to a lot of controversy. Pause on Dr. Heiser's article for a second. Think about the the word cool and how Americans in particular have used the word cool over the last 50 years. Now, cool can have something to do with temperature or it can have something to do with somebody's status. And nowadays we just say something is cool in the same way that somebody else might used to say we're okay with that. It's a word that has almost lost its force. And so if you're translating the word cool into another language, or if you are uh, you are speaking a speaker of another language and you encounter the English word cool, it's going to take some effort to figure out how the writer is using that word because it has a large range of meanings or semantic domain. So back to Heiser's article, 1 Corinthians 7.1 is an illustrative of this potential hazard. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 7.1 in several different translations. For instance, ESV, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. NASB, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's kind of two different verses, right? NIV, it is good for a man not to marry. Wait a minute, that's three different meanings. TNIV, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or NLT, it is good to live a celibate life. Now that's one verse, and I count of the five translations there Dr. Heiser lists, 
four of them have meanings that are quite different. And of this, Dr. Heiser says, the most word-for-word -word of these translations is that of the NASB, which captures the literal reading of the Greek words in the verse, particularly the verb touch, which in the Greek is haptomai. Other translations move away from the ambiguous touch, and they use to have sexual relations with. The most controversial readings of this passage are the NIV, which says it is good for a man not to marry, and the NLT, which says it is good to live a celibate life. How is it that the translators could go from a Greek word that means touch to these options? It's a great question. The answer, Dr. Heiser says, is that the translators factored in what was presumed to be the wider context of the chapter and ultimately the writer. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 8, Paul describes himself as single. His advice to the Corinthians in several places is that it would be wiser for those who are not yet married to remain unmarried because of an undefined quote, present distress that 1 Corinthians 7.26 talks about. This context is presumed in 1 Corinthians 7.1 by both the NIV and the NLT. However, these translations, even though they are probable, plausible, not probable, even though they are plausible, they're still problematic. While Paul notes a present distress in 727, can we be certain that Paul was thinking about that same distress in 1 Corinthians 7.1? Might Paul have been thinking about sexual morality instead? Because the verses that immediately follow 1 Corinthians 7.1 speak frankly about sexual temptation. If morality was on Paul's mind, then the ESV and TNV are more on target. The point would be then an admonition to uh, an admonition to avoid sexual contacts outside of marriage, not to avoid marriage itself. So you see how big of a deal this is. Heiser concludes, translation isn't just a matter of matching words of one language to words of another. Rather than consider Bible translators as traitors, we need to be sympathetic for their burden. Reading multiple translations can reveal the complexities of the process. And that's the end of Dr. Heiser's article. Let me say this. This doesn't mean that we can't understand the Bible, of course. But what we are dealing with in the question that we're dealing with today about the unicorn and what we are dealing with when we read some of the more thorny issues in Paul's letters, like about marriage, for instance, is largely the same thing. Sometimes translation can be difficult. It's not an insurmountable difficulty, and I can't think of a single major doctrine where this issue comes to bear, but it does require some careful study and thought. Oh, back to unicorns. I believe the best way to handle the unicorn slash Raheim issue is to realize that the writers of the KJV likely used a word, unicorn, which is a less than ideal translation. Now, that, saying that, I've yet to see evidence that convinces me that these KJV translators themselves believed in the mythical unicorn. So, going with the thought that unicorn isn't the best translation or meaning of Rahem, what is? I suggest three possibilities, and then I'll conclude with what I think is the best option. 
this is going to go from least plausible to most plausible. So the third least plausible option for Rehaim, and by the way, when I say that word, you might notice I'm, I'm getting a little little phlegm, a little spittle in the back of my throat. Uh, Hebrew is a much more guttural language than is than is American English in particular. And so the word Rehaim, I'm not good at gutturals at all, it requires some of that phlegm. So I'm trying to say it well, but my Hebrew, especially my spoken Hebrew, is not excellent. So I'm doing my best. Uh, so, so anyway, th three options. The third worst option for Rehaim is the Siberian unicorn or the Elasmotherium sibiricum. This was a whale of an animal. It was a giant rhinoceros sort of thing. Four meters long, two and a half meters high. It weighed three and a half metric tons. And if you need me to translate all of that into American for you, we're talking in the neighborhood of 14 feet long, almost nine feet tall, and beefier than your Uncle Bubba carrying a four by four tire. This thing was big. The Elasmotherium sibiricum is a really massive unicorn. Well, it's a big thing and it's got one horn at least. Despite its huge size, it was lithe, it was agile, and it seemed very adapted to running across its homelands of Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Western and Central Russia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, and Uzbekistan, and possibly parts of Mongolia and China. This animal greatly matches the biblical description of the Rehaim. It was large, powerful, had an incredibly large horn, bigger than most rhinoceri of today. Actually, it's rhinoceroses. It was also agile and fast. According to Cosmos magazine, until now, that creature had been thought to have gone extinct about 200,000 years ago, which obviously would rule it out as part of the natural extinction rate that preceded the arrival of humanity. However, more recently, radiocarbon dating yielded some surprising results, which suggested that this creature, the Siberian unicorn, only 39,000 years ago went extinct. Now, so if science up until the last year was off 160,000 years as far as how far away this creature was from extinction, what if they're still off by a few thousand years? What if Elasmotherium lived until Old Testament times? Now, I don't think this is very likely at all, but let's just call it a distant possibility. Like I said, I think this is the third most likely explanation of Rehaim. Our second most plausible explanation is that the Rehaim is actually what we would call a rhinoceros. There's a few solid reasons to go in this direction. For one, the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, says rhinoceros in Deuteronomy 33.17 and rhinoceros in Job 39.9. A professor, Alan Godby, wrote in an extended article in, uh, on this issue, the unicorn, in 1939, that Pliny's natural history records that around 62 BC, 
So 62 years before Jesus was born, roughly, give or take a few years, a rhinoceros was exhibited during the games of Pompey the Great. That particular rhinoceros had very white skin, was roughly the size of an elephant, and it had a large single horn on its nose. Though we might hesitate to think of a rhino as graceful, they can be quite powerful and fast, and they undoubtedly have a large and powerful horn. Would the writers of the Old Testament be familiar with the rhino? I'd say it's possible, certainly more possible than the Siberian unicorn, but nowhere near certain. And that brings us to the option I think is the most likely explanation for the Rehem. And that would be either the extinct Aurochs or an animal very similar. Now the Aurochs, that is A-U-R-O-C-H-S, is a large, wild, powerful, uh, sort of think of a combination between sort of a buffalo large bull and uh, maybe an ox. These are big, big, big creatures that used to roam all about parts of Asia and parts of Europe. Now, I realize, of course, that aurochs does not merely have one horn, but two. And by the way, that's going to be okay. It does not appear that the original Hebrew word, rachem, demands a one-horned animal. Indeed, one way of translating part of Numbers 23-22, the way that the NASB, the ESV, and the CSB translations choose, is to say this, God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the Graham. Horns, plural. The Hebrew for horns, to'apaha, also translated in some other versions as strength or glory. Because in the Old Testament, horns represented strength and glory. But that word there is plural. That means that the mighty aurochs ticks all of the boxes off for the Old Testament description of a rehem. It is large and powerful. It is very difficult to tame. It is surprisingly fast for its size, and it has very imposing horns. Indeed, I understand that lots of nobles hunted the aurochs just, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years ago, just to have one of those horns to show off and drink out of. Supposedly, they were massive, and, and fossilized records and skeletons of these creatures confirm it. Uh, you can even see a picture on our show note page at BibleMysteryPod.com. In addition to all of that, unlike our options above, the Aurochs appears to have inhabited Israel during the time of the Old Testament. Sadly, it would appear that the last Aurochs died out in a forest in Poland in 1627. Happily, though, I think happily, there are several genetic projects underway right now as I record this to reintroduce the Aurochs. Though I guess I can imagine a sort of a mammalian Jurassic Park scenario here that doesn't necessarily end well for people. Now, Julius Caesar, yes, that Julius Caesar, the one you know and love, he was quite familiar with the uh, Aurochs, and he wrote about him extensively in his uh, Gallic War commentaries. And so this is what uh, this is what Emperor Caesar wrote. These animals, which are called Uri, these are a little below the elephant in size and of the appearance, color, and shape of a bull. 
Their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beasts which they have espied. These the Germans take with much pains in pits and kill them. The young men harden themselves with this exercise and practice themselves in this sort of hunting. And those who have slain the greatest number of them, having produced the horns in public to serve as evidence, receive great praise. But not even when taken very young can they be rendered familiar to men and tamed. The size, shape, and appearance of their horns differ much from the horns of our oxen. These they anxiously sink after and bind at the tips with silver and use as cups at their most sumptuous entertainments. That's a pretty good description, and I think it fits the biblical description of the Re'em spot on. And there's actually a couple more reasons to associate the Aurochs with the Re'em. One of those reasons comes from the 1906 Jewish Encyclopedia, among other sources, and that encyclopedia writes, The allusions to the Re'em as a wild, untamable animal of great strength and agility with mighty horns best fit the Aurochs. This view is supported by the Assyrian word Remu, which is often used as a metaphor of strength and is depicted in pictographs as powerful, fierce, as a powerful, fierce, wild, or mountain bull with large horns, much like the Aurochs. Finally, Dr. Alan Godberry, who I mentioned earlier, probably studied this question more than anybody in history and wrote a very long paper on it, concludes this way. The decisive factor came with the deciphering of cuneiform inscriptions reaching back 4,000 years earlier than any Hebrew text that we have. The Hebrew texts give the word rimu repeatedly. It is a gigantic wild ox. The cuneiform ideogram confines him to the mountains. That's from the paper, The Unicorn in the Old Testament. Ultimately, though, even though I am Team Aurochs, I think that recognizing the ambiguity of the term Re'aim here is the best approach to translation. Because even though the Aurochs checks off all of our boxes, the evidence for it is circumstantial at best, as a policeman might say. Therefore, we should probably do what a lot of modern Bible translators do with uh, a passage in Genesis 6-4. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. We're ultimately going to do a podcast on this one too. In the King James Version, Genesis 6-4 reads this way, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now, what the translators did with that passage there is they rendered the Hebrew word Nephilim as the word giants. That's a very interesting translation to be sure, and there's some pretty good reasons for doing it, but it's also a problematic translation. Let's look at a more modern translation. This is the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Genesis 6-4 reads thus in the CSB. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. 
Yes, it's a bit of a cop-out. But in the absence of compelling evidence that the best translation of Nephilim, uh, Nephilim is giants, I think it might be a good cop-out especially given that we have almost no idea whatsoever a Nephilim actually is. More on the Nephilim in a future episode of the show. Given all of the above, Numbers 23-22, for instance, probably would have been better rendered by the translators of the King James Version as this, God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a great horned beast. In doing that, though we've slightly elongated the text, we have faithfully translated it in a better and much less problematic way, a rendering that preserves clarity while translated Rephaim accurately and understandably in a way that avoids guessing about what exact animal the original authors of the Old Testament were referring to. Now, it doesn't solve the mystery, of course, but it is our best and safest option. Of course, we could also simply say something like this, he hath, as it were, the strength of a rahim, but I think that sort of translation should be reserved for the rarest of cases, like Genesis 6-4, for instance. Unfortunately, it means that we will have to file this particular Bible mystery in our cold case file. The identity of Rahim will remain a bit of a secret to us and is likely to remain so until the second coming. Alas, I don't guarantee solved mysteries for the podcast, just that we'll talk about them. And that's all for this episode. I am genuinely grateful that you took the time to listen. Thank you for that. If you are particularly interested in this topic, I do would I would like to point you to my book Monsters in the Bible. It's available on Amazon and probably some other places too. I'm in the process of editing the book and adding lots of material to it, and there should be a second edition out very soon. If you buy it now, you'll get the second edition from Amazon when it comes out, so no worries there. But I, I do want to point you to that book. We talk about a lot of interesting creatures in that book. And, and again, there's going to be more added to it. I also want to invite you to check out the website for the show, BibleMysteryPod.com. BibleMysteryPod.com. You can leave a voicemail for us there. We got a speak, speak pipe hooked up. So if you got a question, you can send it straight to me and I'll even play your voice on the show. And finally, and most important, I would love, in fact, I, I'm just stopping short of begging you. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. Nothing is more helpful to an indie podcaster like myself than word of mouth. So thanks again for listening. Check out the website, subscribe to the show, and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.